This is London Calling. You are listening to Thought and Leaders. Hello and welcome again to another global podcast of Thought and Leaders. We had him on about four or five months ago and he's been very, very generous to allow us to ask him some more questions on behalf of our listeners from all around the world to do with COVID, lockdown to and looking further beyond. We have with us today Sir David King. Hello, Sir David. Hello, Jonathan. Very, very kind of you to join us. Excellent. Now, before we get into the COVID-related questions, I know that you are very much involved with climate control. They're bringing forward getting rid of some of these petrol vehicles within 10 years. What's your views on that? It's very welcome, but it's not nearly enough. Hmm. I very much welcomed Theresa May's Mm. announcement of moving from 80% reduction by 2050 to net zero. We were the first country in the world in 2017 to do that. And as you know, Mm. this means that many countries around the world have joined in with similar commitments, especially China. Mm. Uh, President Xi Jinping has made a very clear statement on this. And I know from talking to colleagues in China and people in the government there that they are taking it very seriously. They're coming up with their next five-year plan, but they're going to include for the first time two five-year plans, so taking them forward 10 years. And they're rewriting this as a result of this commitment made by their president. Mm. Uh, China's expectation is that they will be spending roughly 2% of GDP every year going forward to manage this transition. But they are describing it not as a cost, but as an investment into the future. And that's critically important. Do you honestly think that we can put in electrical charge points all over the place in blocks of flats and everywhere else within nine years? We have to do it, in my view. I'm sitting here in Cambridge talking to you from my home and there are no charging points in the streets of Cambridge. Yeah. And that's a massive disincentive to people buying electric vehicles, much as everyone in Cambridge would like to. All the vehicles, petrol vehicles at the moment, the diesel vehicles at the moment, they're going to have to get rid of it all. It's pretty drastic, isn't it? It sounds pretty drastic. The, that, that is the cost of uh, making the wrong investments in the past. Yeah. Whatever happens... We have to face the future and face it clearly Mm. because the challenges of climate change, Mm. frankly, just put COVID-19 into the backseat. For example, with the way that the Arctic is now melting, we can look at the region of Southeast Asia, Mm. the, the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam. Those parts of the world are going to lose enormous amounts of their land mass as a place for people to live means something like 250 million people moving from that place. When? In 30 to 40 years' time. This isn't something way distant in the future. We have to tackle this problem urgently now and invest in the future. Well, there's no time like the present. I want to go to the issue of COVID. 
Health economics is all about balancing the cost of saving lives. Sometimes a tough decision has to be made, and we've seen it with some expensive cancer treatments. So the question is, to what extent were the government's decisions regarding COVID-19 based on the impact on the economy? Well, let me just first of all respond to that, Jonathan, by saying Mm -hmm. there's a lot of misunderstanding about the connection between economic growth in this country and dealing with COVID-19. Quite simply, those countries, let me take South Korea as an example, but I would say Greece is also an example, that acted quickly to get ahead of the epidemic, putting in place all of the healthcare procedures that were required back in February this year. Mm. uh, We only began acting in March, April, May. And even now, we haven't got a full test and trace operative system that leads to isolation of all the people with disease. Those countries that have suffered the most, and Britain probably is the worst, Mm. in terms of the number of deaths per 100,000 people and in terms of the economic impact, are the countries that have done badly on both. Quite simply, if you get ahead of an epidemic, if you isolate people with a disease early on, your economy doesn't suffer because the healthy people can keep going to work as they would normally do. Okay, Sir David, a listener has written in with the following question for you. Looking at the data from ONS statistics and describing excess mortality in England during the pandemic, it appears that as the number of deaths ascribed to COVID-19 increase, deaths from other causes decrease. Any explanation for that? Let me just uh, first of all take you through the the first wave of the epidemic, March, April, May, June. During that wave, there is a peak in other case deaths as well as in COVID-19 deaths. And so that is uh, a real correlation. So the reason, obviously, is that people couldn't get into hospitals for the urgent operations, particularly, let's say, cancer operations. I've got an example of this. My daughter's partner, his mother, should have had an operation back at that point in time, around about March, April, for cancer. She finally goes into hospital just recently, got COVID in hospital and died. I'm so sorry to hear it's mm. yeah he was unable to see his mother from the point she went into hospital i'm so sorry i'm so, so sorry yeah it's awful but i i think what what i wanted to do was say okay then the puzzle is the the current wave yes the cases are going up in the uk under covid-19 yeah. but for other causes the cases are actually going down and that is a puzzle my explanation is perhaps a rather surprising one we are seeing fewer cases of flu in this country this winter the the expectation of course was that the combination of flu plus covid-19 would be deadly now It may be that it's yet to arrive, but the point I'm going to make is that with the international travel severely cut back, we've got far fewer travelers coming in from the Southern Hemisphere to Britain and to Europe now. And so uh, we always pick up these uh, flu uh, bouts from the Southern Hemisphere, which is how we get the vaccines developed in time for when it arrives here. So it may just be 
that we've got a, a big decrease in the number of flu cases. And of course, flu is a major reason why in the winter we normally see many more uh, deaths of older people. We hear numbers every day of deaths of people who have died within 28 days of a test. Do you have any idea how many of those people specifically died of virus SARS-CoV-19? We can't tell. The way we're counting COVID deaths is those who have died, as, as you've just said, within a 28-day period of being tested positive. And of course, if there are other causes, that isn't then discounted as a non-COVID case. This is a compromise. Uh, some countries are saying two months from the date of test. Mm. We're saying one month. And I, I think that's probably the best compromise. But we simply don't know. What we do know is that people who have yeah. comorbidities, we call them, uh, people who have other uh, problems mm. uh, are more likely to die if they get COVID-19. That we certainly do know. It's very much in the headlines at the moment about Christmas for every day that they're going to allow people to celebrate the festivities. They're going to take off five or thereabouts. We would all like to be with our families over Christmas. My extended family, I have now got five grandchildren. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it is wonderful. And of course, we, we all like to celebrate Christmas with our families. I think it's probably going to be a very difficult Christmas this year. Let me take you back. What I was saying back in June, I said, for goodness sake, don't lift the lockdown until the number of cases is such that we test 85% about of new cases every day and make sure they're all isolated and supported in isolation. If we had done that, we would have approached the winter in a much happier state. But right now, the number of cases per day, as you know, is still in excess of 20,000. Wow, unbelievable. Yes, it is. And by December the 2nd, of course, we were hoping that it would be down to something like 5,000. It doesn't look too promising at the moment. Uh, if it was down to 5,000, we should be able to have a test and trace system that would pick up the cases. Yeah. But the government still hasn't focused on the isolation question. You, the whole point of testing is to isolate. But the other thing, is, so David, as you'll appreciate from a psychological point of view, is that with lockdown, lockdown one, give or take, I'm going to say give or take, all right? So give or take, people were basically compliant. But in lockdown two, it doesn't look like the same type of feel as lockdown one. And so when it comes to Christmas, is there a real danger that the messaging is not really precise enough in terms of convincing people, that please don't break the rules when it comes to uh, Christmas and COVID? There is a difference between this lockdown and the last, and that is that the government, and we supported the government in this, decided to have schools open in this period. And so children are still going to school. As I go for my early morning walk in Cambridge, there's far more traffic on the road uh, and many of them are parents taking children to school. So, yes, we've got much more activity, but uh, frankly, the centre of Cambridge is pretty dead through the day. There is a cost to keeping schools open, and we recognise that. We, we felt in order to manage to get down to 5,000 a day, 
without schools uh, closing, would take another two, three weeks beyond December 2nd. We could have done it if we'd closed the schools, but I think we all know how important it was to keep them open. So with our Prime Minister, looking at those pictures on the news, he didn't seem to be very social distancing, and there's quite a few MPs now who have had to isolate. What kind of a message is that sending people? Obviously, that's not a very good message, is it? But I do think what is a good message is the Prime Minister announcing that he was is isolating. That's a very important message. Okay, here's another listener question. Why are manicurists allowed to care homes when families or relatives who are dying from acute loneliness cannot be with their loved ones? Obviously, this is a critically important question. Care homes have proved to be a very vulnerable place because, of course, older people are very vulnerable to the disease. And if the virus gets into a care home, it spreads through the care home very quickly. Very simply, the people who care for the elderly are going from one patient to another. And if they pick up the virus, the virus is going to spread before they're even tested. You're going to be spreading the virus for three days before you're getting tested uh, uh, with the symptoms. So I, I think that there is a very real risk associated with people going into care homes. What we need to do is have a rigorous testing procedure and even, I would say, an isolation procedure to enable this to happen. In other words, have you been in isolation for 14 days and Can we test you and check that you're not positive now and then let people in? I fully sympathize with this. It just seems the most painful thing to exclude people from their relatives in care homes. Question from London. Will it be the end of the mask wearing traveling abroad once you have been vaccinated? I think it will be the end of the mask wearing. But of course, once you've been vaccinated, we need a procedure that shows that you've been vaccinated and you've been tested positive for the antibodies. Right? And that what that means is we would need that stamped into your passport. I uh-huh. think in many, many countries, there will not be the capability of distinguishing people who've been vaccinated from those who haven't. And in that case, we'll be wearing masks in those countries. Wow. Um, and, you know, in particular countries like France, where the disease is so rampant, right? And I would also say Britain. So I think there are real difficulties associated with people not wearing masks, particularly indoors in shops and so on. Out of doors, we're in a different situation. There we've got to keep the two metre apart rule and then we don't need to wear masks. Did you see the news about if you're indoors, you must keep your windows open? I think that's a very good idea, unless you uh, feel that it's getting cold. Well, obviously. I mean, yes, you want fresh air blowing through, and of course, in schools. You know, we, we, we all know that schools are places where the disease can spread, and you, you've got teachers and school staff in touch with the kids. We need to see that we've got ventilation. We should have checked that we were able to put school children into other buildings that are currently not used, right? There there are things that could have been done to keep down the density of school children in a classroom. Some more questions. Here they come. 
a double-edged one here. Can you get a face-to-face GP appointment when you've been vaccinated in the future? And why can't you do that now if you wear a mask? I think the point is that if you go indoors to see your GP and you're sitting there with a bunch of other people who want to see the GP, you may all be wearing a mask. But the mask provides... A certain percentage reduction in disease transfer, it doesn't guarantee no disease transfer. So I think the situation in uh, doctor surgeries is a very difficult one. And I do think that the doctors who have surgeries where they can put up tents outside and keep them very fully ventilated, that is the best way forward. In fact, my GP has an entrance through a window which is leading on to a, a window. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> it, 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 lead, it leads on to a tented area. And that, that is the smart thing to do. Very good. It's different if nothing else. Okay, um, more, <laughs> question, <laughs> more questions coming in, quite a few here. Until an approved vaccine is released, will we continually go in and out of lockdowns? Unless the government changes its mode of test, trace, isolate and support, I'm afraid we would just go from one lockdown to the next. So, for example, Mm. if the government removes all the lockdown procedures to allow everyone to have a great Christmas, immediately afterwards we would go straight into another lockdown. Uh If an approved vaccine is found, how long will it take to circulate to the general population? Right. That's such a very good question. And that does depend which vaccine is approved. Um, So, for example, there's an awful lot of information coming out about the Oxford vaccine. The PR work there is is very, very good. Um, I worry about that. Yeah. Uh, But nevertheless, that vaccine is one of the front runners. Um, it's it's not the, amongst the top two front runners at the moment. Both of those are developed in uh, for American companies. That's right. If the Oxford vaccine comes through, it would roll out obviously to Britain first and foremost. And I would say by next summer we would have vaccinated enough people in this country in order to have got rid of the pandemic. But if we, although some people are saying, some people are saying um, autumn next year. Yes, you're saying summer. Well, I'm saying if the vaccine is local, if it becomes available early, then it's possible. So we summer to autumn. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, mm. as you will know, the government didn't pre-purchase vaccines from one of the two companies that's recently announced they've got a good one running and it's much better than the Pfizer vaccine because it can be stored at reasonably low temperatures not exceedingly low so the second company's vaccine we've bought five million now well five million is is nothing you know compared with the British population we can protect the more vulnerable people and I'm going to put my hand up and say me please Five million is not enough to get rid of the pandemic. Next question here. Why does it appear quick to see the virus infections rising, but slow for infections to reduce? Okay. In the first pandemic, the the rise rate was such that it was doubling uh, in the, the month of March and into April. It was doubling every three to four days. It was quadrupling every week. And then the fall rate was uh, roughly halving every two weeks? And that's the question. It's a very good question. The virus 
Hmm. is easily spread. This is a very infectious disease, which is why it's a pandemic. This brings me neatly to this question I have in front of me here. Why are we now in a second wave of the virus, which seems to be, and here goes, it seems to be worse than the first one. Why? We never got the disease under control. The number of people who were walking around who had been in contact with somebody who developed the symptoms and was tested positive is large. There are thousands of people walking around who can have picked up the virus. They may be asymptomatic. They're not showing the symptoms, but they can spread the virus. And that's exactly how it spreads. And so we come out of that period in July when we had got it down to a relatively small number Mm -hmm. of new cases per day. And now we are back right up towards the high levels we had in March, April. We must never forget the number of people in Britain who have got resistance to the disease has not appreciably increased as a result of the pandemic so far. Mm. So the percentage is quite low. That means a lot of us are still vulnerable. So the disease can still spread. Mm. It will only stop when the people... All of us have got antibodies, then the disease gets no foothold at all and will die out. Mm. Uh, Or if we are isolating everybody who has the disease from the rest of us. Which brings me beautifully to the questions that have come in, specifically now about the vaccine. How many people need to be vaccinated for it to be successful? We know that the trials conducted were on 43,000 people. So how many people need to be vaccinated for it to be successful? We can... Look at this in terms of the measles, mumps, and uh, rubella vaccine. When there was a big scare about uh, vaccination back in the early 2000s, the figure dropped well below 80%, and we began to see children contracting measles in particular around the country again, which was terrible because children can suffer very badly and many of them die. I would say the same sort of figure here. We really need to aim towards 80%. But if we did get up to 60%, Mm. basically the pandemic wouldn't be able to take off the way it is now. So I I think anything above 60% would be good. Mm -hmm. How long will the vaccine protect people? Six months, 12 months? Uh And will it be distributed based on clinical need? The answer is that we don't know. We do worry about the fact that it seems as if Antibody protection has disappeared amongst people. So in other words, they develop the resistance having had the disease. And then after a period of time, the antibodies diminish. That isn't the end of the story, though, because we have things called T cells that can respond very quickly. Once your body's been alerted to a particular virus, you can respond very quickly through T cell action to produce the antibodies again. So frankly, nobody could really answer that question, but we should be able to see enough immunity in Mm. the population over a 12-month period to eliminate the pandemic. Here's an interesting one. Given that this would be the biggest logistical challenge in the UK's history, and that there have already been reports about problems just getting enough winter flu vaccine, never mind about anything else. Does the country really have the storage and distribution infrastructure in place to deliver a vaccine that needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees? That's a very, very important question. And for me, it is critically important 
that the government addresses it. So that's why I say this is important. Well, the government needs to develop the notion of foresight. You have to plan ahead. I would have said back in February, let's set up a new non-permanent, a temporary department to handle this pandemic. We could have then handled it very well. And right now, this is one of the things that we're not in a place to manage. Basically, the healthcare system in the UK has been virtually dismantled since 2010, 2012, very big cuts in funding and staffing. And that has been a big reason why we're in the situation we're in. As we look at this uh, minus 70 degree vaccine, that is a very big challenge. We need to have the cold capacity for storage in uh, many of our hospitals. Many of them do have it. And I'm not going to say we don't have the storage capacity, but uh, your GP won't have that, right? So it's uh, it's a question of where the vaccination is going to be conducted. Even if you did have the logistics to store it and all the rest of it, which hopefully we will, the other issue is just manufacturing it. I mean, we're talking about a lot of vaccines here that need to, I mean, it all takes time, which brings me to this question that's here. It says here, it usually takes 10 years to release a vaccine. How, they ask, can we trust something that has been rushed out in months? I think we can trust that any vaccine that is put out quickly in the current situation for one very good reason, that if a vaccine was to fail, by which I mean if people were to suffer from being vaccinated, the anti-vaccine community would be rampant. And everyone in the healthcare business knows the importance of vaccines. So we dare not risk putting a vaccine into the public domain until it has been through all of the rigorous testing procedures required. We can speed them up, and that is what's happening, but we must never short-circuit them. People who are laymen are just going to think, but it usually takes 10 years, and these people are able suddenly to do it in months. Yes. Here's the kind of speed up that has happened very positively. January 23rd, in the British Journal Lancet, a group of Chinese scientists published a tremendous paper in which they not not only talked about how the disease was spreading, how, how infectious this virus is, but they even showed the structure of the virus and the DNA. Wow. So, in other words, at that point, January 23rd, all of the vaccine developers around the world had the information they needed to start developing. So I, I, I and by the way, yeah. this government, the American government, other governments have been putting a lot of money in to boost the speed at which these vaccines are able to be produced. This brings me to these two questions I'm going to join together for you. The nation has had over nine months to get its track and trace system fully operational, but has failed to do so. So how can people feel assured about vaccines or any other development? And this, this again, is an extremely good question. The government has failed us radically by its procedures. And that procedure, I can, I can tell you what my thought is. Why did the government delay the development of a test and trace system until May this year, when other countries in the world, such as South Korea, already had it operating back in March? Why didn't we just learn from other countries, China and South Korea and so on, instead Mm. of handing it over to 
private companies in the UK with zero healthcare experience, and we have now spent, we, the taxpayers of this country, have spent something like 11, 12 billion pounds with these private companies. It yeah. is has been crazy. If we had spent a fraction of that yeah. in refunding the public healthcare system, this could have been done locally. It could have been done through GPs, through all of the hospital laboratories we have around the country. We are still well-situated in the healthcare sector except for funding. And that's, that's the way most countries did it. But we wanted... Hmm to replace the public health care system, we, the government, with a private system developed in the face of a pandemic crisis. Here's a question. They're talking about this other strain of the virus being found in minks. It's in seven nations now around the world. Are you concerned that even if we have these wonderful vaccines that are going to come out and you say summer, other people say autumn, whatever, that we're going to be vaccinated against it. But then there's this other thing which is brewing up. It is something we have to keep an eye on. But what we need to know is, is this virus capable of living in a human body? Right. So many, many animals have viruses that are incapable of living in human bodies. And the danger comes when the virus transmutes and becomes a new strain that can survive in the human body. I have seen nothing that indicates that this virus in the minks uh, is transferable to humans. Right. It's been reported widely that a lot of people are saying that they want to be sure, they want to watch what this vaccine does in terms of affecting other people before they take it themselves. And the BBC reported that one in three people would not initially have the vaccine because of such worries about these side effects. And they actually point to thalidomide. Thalidomide was one of those dreadful happenings that should have been foreseen by the pharmaceutical community and wasn't. Mm. And as a result... All of these safety procedures have been massively tightened up. The reason why there are three stages required in testing every vaccine, mm. and the last stage is testing it with hundreds of thousands of people to see that nobody responds with a negative response. It cannot be released until we've done that. And that last stage, of course, is very expensive. So each of these producers of vaccines that are appearing towards the marketplace are having to go through that whole process. Internationally, it could not be released without going through that. Thalidomide was a very, very important learning experience for the industry. Absolutely, it was. A couple of questions here now, which are more technical questions that people have asked. You mentioned Oxford, there's Pfizer, there's Moderna. People don't understand. They're asking me, but how are these things different and do they contain elements of the virus in it? I mean, for the layman, how are they different? So let me try and answer your question in layman's terms. Please. Normally, you would vaccinate with a virus form that is similar to the virus which, that is causing the disease, but it, it's carefully treated so it can't cause the disease. Mm -hmm. It does enough to stimulate the development of the antibodies. Knowing the structure of the virus, you can attack one part of the virus with um, the, the mm. vaccine, and that part of the virus is neutralized 
And that is crucial because then the virus can't uh, survive in, in the human body. So it's, it's not the virus that you're vaccinated with. It's neither dead nor alive. Um, it's a small portion, a molecule that will simply attach itself and effectively kill the virus. Why is age the biggest factor? And are there va- reasons for va- vulnerable people to be concerned about these vaccines? And so the other side of that question is, and so why are young people so uh, able to have this disease without too much trouble? Good point. Right? So I, I think this is a real puzzle. Normally, you would develop uh, your immune system as you are exposed to various viruses uh, around. Uh, but older people are unable to uh, sustain this process against this particular coronavirus and younger people have these defenses. I'm afraid I don't know what the answer to this question is, but it's such an important one. Yeah, it's the same with black Asian minority groups who are said to be particularly uh, susceptible to COVID. Just got to be a bit careful with that one because we're not seeing that in uh, in countries in Africa. Right? And so I do believe good point. Yeah. Uh, many of the ethnic minorities uh, are living in deprived areas of cities in, in Britain. So, for example, in Birmingham, the cases were taking off in East Birmingham, where people live, A, in very crowded conditions, mm. and B, in many of these communities, there's a, I think it's a lovely side of how they live, many generations will live in one house. And and so, you know, great-grandmothers are there yeah. with children, and, of course, that means that they're very vulnerable, so the death rate goes up. Mm. So I, I think that the evidence is more that it's deprived communities that are suffering really badly. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The mouthwash from a lab in Cardiff, they're saying 30 seconds of swishing around with a mouthwash can help kill the virus. What do you make of that? Well, do use mouthwash. Sounds like a good idea. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> but, but frankly, you you can breathe the virus in through your nose. Uh, of course, if if your if your mouthwash does uh, the job, then great. But uh, I I haven't seen the evidence. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> there's, there's no harm. So one last point, which isn't a question, which is to you. Some people criticise you for being too down on all of this stuff. Give us some hope. What's your hope for the future leading up to, say, April, thinking about that Christmas, which is now just a couple of weeks away? Well, I'm sorry if I sound down. I I think I am simply really worried about the way the government has been handling this epidemic. Uh, You know, Britain could have been in the same place as South Korea. We knew about the disease Early on, uh, we saw Italy uh, going down before it ever came to this country. We had plenty of time to prepare. And as a matter of fact, when I was in government, I set about a whole project on infectious diseases that got Mm. the whole world thinking about this. So I, I, I don't think that we needed to have been in this terrible situation. That that makes me upset and angry. But I, I think yeah. what is the positive thing? We're going to emerge from this. There's no question. We're going to emerge from it. We are not enjoying ourselves at the moment. No, 
having pubs closed, restaurants closed. It's, uh, you know, a lot of our pleasures are being taken from us. Christmas, how miserable will that be if we can't have families around us? I, I'm not applauding this at all. But I think if we can be patient, if we can understand mm. that we can beat this disease by being patient, we can get back into the normal daily lives. It is going to mean that people, particularly in deprived communities, need considerably more support than they're getting at the moment. Absolutely. Well, look, thank you once again, Sir David, for joining us here on Fortin Leaders. I know that the listeners are very appreciative of you taking your time to do this. And so let's hope that this Christmas for you and your family will be a wonderful one. And also that the new year will bring renewed vigour and, as you just said, hope. Jonathan, thank you. And may I, in turn, wish you the same. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just you wait and see There'll be love and laughter And peace ever after Tomorrow and Leaders is a goodbye production. Subscribe today via Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music or your favourite podcast platform. If you're looking for award-winning content for your brand or have a compelling story for a future show, please check out www.thoughtandleaders.com or email reinventatme.com. That's reinventatme.com. Glyphs of Dover Tomorrow Just you wait and see